Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We love your word in this church. And we trust that it is your word to us this morning. We believe that every word of it has been inspired by you and every word of it is useful for us, for teaching us, for training us, for correcting us. Lord, I pray that we would have that posture this morning of submission to your word and your will. Lord, please change us by the power of your spirit as we open our hearts to your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if any of you this morning have um, ever experienced something that you could call miraculous. By definition, not many of you would have experienced that. Though things might have happened in your life that other people would call miraculous, and maybe you just think they're by the by, some of you, I know for a fact, have experienced miraculous occurrences, occurrences that cannot be explained by natural means, out-of-the-box things that have happened by God's grace. If I look back across my life, the most of my Christian life is lived in the, in the mundane, in the day-to-day, normal cause and effect working um, in this age, but I have experienced some things that can't be explained by natural means. I have experienced some things that I would call miraculous, the kind of month around my conversion was a time of miraculous happenings. It was like I'd been thrown back into the book of Acts as we're reading it over the next 25 weeks. My conversion itself is miraculous. That's one miracle that all of the Christians here have experienced, right? If you don't think it's miraculous that you're a Christian this morning, you don't know yourself well enough. I think of the miraculous healings that I've witnessed as This church has gathered to pray for people who have been sick in different ways, and we've seen those prayers being answered, sometimes in the longer term, sometimes in the very short term. I think of my wife, Renee, and one instance in particular that I think of as being very miraculous. She had just given birth to India, and the thing about Renee is she has a very rare blood type. And, um, and so she gave birth to India, who has a regular blood type like mine. And some of the ladies might know that um, when that happens, there is a danger that if the, the, the blood of the child mixes with the blood of the mother, then the mother's system, the mother's um, immune system will start to fight that foreign blood and start to produce antibodies against that blood and essentially treat the blood of the infant as like a virus And so if that woman were to get pregnant again and the baby that she is bearing had the same blood type as the first baby, then her own body would start attacking that baby like a virus. And so we were aware of this from the beginning. We took every precaution against that eventuality happening. And by some fluke, it did happen. And after India was born, some blood had changed over in a fairly tumultuous Um, delivery, and Renee's body had started to make these antibodies. We wanted to have another child, and so when it came the time for us to start trying to have kids, we were aware that it was a possibility, it was 
it was a likely eventuality that Renee's own body would start to attack that baby, and the repercussions for that uh, were grave. That in those very early stages where the fetus is very vulnerable for her own body to be attacking it could have led to all kinds of problems. And so we did test after test after test, and every test came back confirming what we feared most. And all throughout that time, we prayed. And we prayed in spite of the positive tests. We prayed in spite of um, the doctor's prognosis, which was that we would have lots of trouble having kids again. And then before the very last test, I remember distinctly praying with Renee in our house, in our living room in Doncaster, and having an overwhelming flood of affirmation that she was going to be healed. We went and got the test done, and there was no sign of the antibodies that had been there up until that point. Now, doctors sometimes throw away the term miraculous to explain something unexpected. I applied the term technically in that case. That was a miracle of God's grace. He heard the prayers of his people, and because he is merciful and powerful, he answered our prayers. Now, here's the thing. After that happened, that miracle happened, that was all I could talk about for a long time. Every conversation I had would eventually end up with me talking about what had just happened. I was over the moon that we were going to have be able to have another child, and that all of these fears had been allayed. Every sermon illustration at the church I was working at for the next six months was about that thing. All right? I probably got a little bit boring after a while, but I was just consumed with thankfulness and, and just astonishment that this had actually happened, that God had actually answered our prayers in this way and worked against the natural cause and effect nature of the universe to save Renee from from harm and the child from harm. What we're going to see in just a second, as I read the first part of this passage, we're going to see an amazing miracle take place. And then we're going to see Peter's unexpected response to that miracle. All right, so check it out. Take up your Bibles. Acts chapter 3. I'm going to read from verse 1 to 7. This is the astonishing miracle that takes place. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth, marked that, lame from birth. He didn't pull a hammy in a metafit class or something, all right? He, lame from birth, was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, and as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. That is a miracle, right? 
by any definition. Lame from birth, carried to the temple gate, day after day after day spent begging. In an agrarian society, if you can't work, you don't eat. And so this man spends every day at the same gate. I love that it's called beautiful. Begging for his daily bread. Peter and John come by. They don't have money to give him, but they say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And by the power of that name, of the risen Lord Jesus, the man is healed instantly. Now check out the response that happens to this miracle. One response is typical and expected. The other is completely unexpected, but vital that we get our heads around. All right, so check it out. Let's look at verse 8 to 11. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. Typical response to a miracle. Running, jumping, praising God, people running in to see what's going on, astonishment, celebration. This is the kind of response we had to our little miracle a few years ago. And it's the same response that the people had at the beautiful gate. A man who was lame from birth, a man that they were well acquainted with, who begged from them every day for his daily bread, this man is now running, jumping, and praising God. Astonishment ensues. And you've got to think, this would be the topic of conversation for, I don't know, the next month? In modern times, it would be the number one trending topic, right? Astonishment. That's the typical response. Check out Peter's response because it's atypical, I think. Verse 12 to 16, this is what he says. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. Verse 14. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. It's chilling. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Here's what I don't get about Peter. Peter doesn't use this miraculous occurrence that everybody's talking about and everyone's going to be talking about. He doesn't use it as, a, as an 
as, a, as something to leverage his platform. Right? He is a leader of a new movement. And he's got this great opportunity. His publicist would be tearing her hair out. Right? This is your opportunity to gather momentum for your movement. This should be leveraged to raise your platform in the community. If I was Peter, I would definitely be doing that. I would be getting the social media team to get the word out about what had just happened through me. And then I would probably run around and see if I could do it again. I'd be looking for people to practice on, see how many I can rack up. What Peter does is not the typical response. And I'm talking about the typical response even from godly Christian leaders today who seem to be a little preoccupied with their own platform. No, Peter instantly plays down his hand in this incredible occurrence and deflects all of the glory to the risen Lord Jesus. Why are you surprised? Why are you looking at me as if there's something in me that has made this happen? He deflects all of their attention to the risen Lord Jesus, and then he goes on to explain what the gospel of the Lord Jesus has achieved for us, for his hearers at the time, and for us here this morning. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. Peter takes this extraordinary occurrence and then doesn't talk about it. Instead, he draws our attention to the gospel of grace and wants us to learn something about that, wants us to focus on that. So that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to see three things that the gospel achieves according to what Peter is about to say. And in this passage, you have this great juxtaposition of of Peter's works and Peter's words. And you're going to see this as a theme throughout the book of Acts. From now until Christmas, you'll see this over and over again. There's the works of the apostles and the words of the apostles, and they go together. All throughout the the ministry of the early church, they had both words and works. They had speeches and miracles. They had sermons and signs of power throughout couple of examples of where Paul talks about this. We'll get to Paul when he gets converted in a few chapters' time. But later on in his ministry, he, um, he referenced this a couple of times. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says this, Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction." That's the way he summarizes the nature of his ministry. It wasn't just words. It wasn't just preaching. It was power. It was miracles. And he says something similar in 1 Corinthians as well. Chapter 2, he says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Again, it's words and it's works. So we've seen the work the works of God through Peter and John in this great miracle, and now we're going to see the words of God through the, the, the preaching of Peter. And he's going to point out three things that the gospel achieves, all right? So check it out. We've got three things. 
Number one, the purification of all sins. Number two, the restoration of all things. Number three, the salvation of all peoples. Three magnificent themes that are central to the gospel of grace. And I'm just going to take one of those at a time, and then we'll be done. Okay, so number one. Number one, the purification of all sins. Verse 19, this is what he says. Repent. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. The miracle has been done. The people have gathered. He has deflected the attention away from him and his ministry to the risen Lord Jesus, and he has now explained to them that they, in crucifying Jesus, though they were somewhat ignorant of what they were doing, they, they killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. He vindicated him. He said to the world, this Jesus is the Son of God, and his sacrifice is good. It is sufficient. It is finished. Raised him to the right hand of God, where he rules and reigns over all things. The whole book of Acts, we've said over and again, is about ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. And that's exactly what Peter is doing now. He said, I'm a normal person. Don't put me on a pedestal. I'm a normal person. But he knows he's been filled with the Spirit to witness to the risen Lord Jesus, which is exactly what he's done. You killed him, but now he's been raised. And the response to hearing that you have killed the author of life is to repent. He says, repent then and turn to God. That's what repentance is, right? Before I repent, I'm walking my own way. I'm following my own agenda. I'm worshipping myself as God. And then repenting is turning to God, turning to the cross. And as we repent, as we confess that I'm not God, Jesus is. That I'm not on the throne, Jesus is. As we repent and confess that, our sins are wiped out. Our sins are wiped out. I really want us to get this as we turn to Jesus. Our sins are wiped out. Not papered over, not partially scrubbed off, but wiped out. And you might ask, what's the original Greek term for that? It's wiped out, gone, annihilated. I don't know what your experience of forgiveness is, but my experience until I came to understand what the gospel was, my experience was do what I want during the week, feel really bad when I get to church, say the confession thing, prayer, feel much better about myself, and then fall back down the hill for the rest of the week. And so church becomes a weekly rhythm of cleansing myself. I'm on a sliding scale where over here, God hates me, and then if I do this or that thing, I'm back up here for the shortest possible amount of time before I start slipping back down again. 
And that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is sufficient to wipe out your sins. All of them, past, present, and future sins. Later on today, because our music team is God's grace to us, we're going to sing one of, our, one of my favorite hymns. My favorite poet of all time is a man named William Cooper, who suffered from debilitating depression all of his life. He tried to kill himself on numerous occasions. He was a recluse, but he was a brilliant poet. And a man named John Newton, who you might know wrote the words to Amazing Grace, took him under his wing, um, and, and he started attending John Newton's church, and they spent some time together writing a hymnal for their church. And one of the hymns they wrote together was the, the hymn that we're going we're gonna to sing later on called There Is a Fountain. And in that hymn, it has these words. He says, that, this, is, this is William Cooper, who is who's utterly despairing of his own salvation. He believes that he has committed the unforgivable sin. He believes that he is bound for hell, and yet in the midst of that, he understands beautifully, scintillatingly, God's grace. And he says, he writes this, and we're going to sing it later. He says, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. He understands what the Bible tells us, that though our sins were like scarlet, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection has made them white as snow. Just let that sink in. In Colossians chapter 1, this is how Paul puts it. But now, notice that. Not but one day or but when you finally work out how to have a quiet time or but when you clean your act up. He says, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Who's, who's accusing you this morning? Who's accusing you this morning? Who's accusing you of your guilt? Who's accusing you of your unworthiness? Yourself and your accuser. Another name for Satan in the scriptures is the accuser of the brethren. Paul says, because of Christ's death, you are being presented whole in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith. That's a beautiful coming together of all of God's gospel truth. Jesus does it all. Why does that mean that you can't just go out and do whatever you want? When that thought occurs to you, maybe it's the accuser again. You know, everyone's going to the strip club for the bucks and, well, I guess I can just play my grace card because Jesus' death has saved me from past, present, and future sin. Why can we not do that? Because he says the, 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 the consequence of being saved by faith alone 
through grace alone is that we continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Why do we keep talking about the gospel every single friggin' week at this church? Because we do not want anyone to move from the hope of the gospel. We do so at our peril. You are blemish-free, accusation-free because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as you continue in the faith of the gospel. That's why Peter wants to talk about the gospel. He doesn't care about his platform. He doesn't care about this incredible, astonishing event that has just happened and the potential it has to you know, propel the movement forward. He wants these people to know the most important thing they can know, and it's not being healed from a disability. It's being healed from the stain of sin. And yes, God may be pleased to do so much more than that. God may be pleased to heal the lame or heal the blood condition. But what Peter wants us to know above everything else is the power of the gospel to wipe out our sin. Number one, the gospel cleanses us from sin. Number two, the restoration of all things. Acts chapter 3, verse 20 to 21. Let's read that. Speaking of God, that God may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Here's what he's talking about here. It's not just that the gospel will save us from our sin. When we reduce the gospel down to a means by which I can get into heaven, to a means by which I can feel less guilty, then we've reduced the gospel down to nothing. Because it's more than that. It's so much more than that. The gospel is not just the forgiveness of our sins, but it's the restoration of all things. That the whole story of Scripture is like a, a loop. And if you've studied literature, I think this is a comedy, all right? It's, it, it, things start out great, they get really bad, and then they come good again. It's the plot line to every romantic comedy that's ever lived, right? They fall in love she finds out he made a bet, she hates him, and then she falls back in love with him, right? It's, right? That's the plot line of the Bible, without wanting to disparage the sacred scriptures, all right? That's the storyline of the Bible. Things start out great. The Garden of Eden is God's purpose and plan for his creation, and then everything goes bad very quickly, and the rest of the Bible is about God's redemption and ultimate restoration of all things. So when you look into the future, what you're going to see if you've read the scriptures is not you sitting on a cloud with wings, playing a harp, eating Philadelphia cream cheese, all right? That is not what the scriptures tell us about the age to come. It tells us that the age to come is going to be a recreated universe, a restored universe, a universe that is an upgrade on Eden, 
It's an upgrade on how things started out. Because there is no potential for things to go bad. It's as God intended it. It's as God wants it to be forever. And all that distorts our picture of beauty and restoration in this life will be taken from us. So Peter says, yes, you have forgiveness of sins, but also know this, Jesus has gone to heaven until such time that God is going to come and restore all things to himself. Now, this past month has reminded us very starkly that we do not live in that age yet, right? Shootings in Dallas and people being mowed down in Nice and military coup and hundreds of deaths in Turkey. All of these events that seem to pepper our news feeds are reminders that the world has not yet been restored. And there are people who try and convince you that really the world is a good place and, 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 and you know, there's just a couple of cracks, and, but essentially everything's pretty good. Those people can say as much as they like that the sun is shining despite the fact that the clouds are gathering and it doesn't make it any more true. Yes, the world was created good, but it has fallen. It is futile. And when we see these events around us in our own experience and the world at large, it's a reminder to us that this world is broken. Paul talks about this as being the groans of creation. These events are like groans. And he says they're like groans of childbirth. It's a great illustration if you think about it. These terrible tragedies that pepper the landscape around us are the groans of childbirth. The day is coming when the baby will be born. The day is coming when joy will reign. The day is coming when God will restore all things. But until that day comes, it's groaning. The world is broken. He says it like this in Romans chapter 8. This is where he really gets at it. Paul in Romans 8, 19 to 21, he says, For the creation waits in eager expectation. Just think about that. The whole world around us is just on the edge of its seat. Eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. Who subjected creation to frustration and futility? God did. God did. He subjected it in hope. He had the big plan in mind from the beginning. He had the restoration of all things in mind from the beginning. And so he subjected the creation against its will to futility in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. That's God's plan for all creation. That's God's plan for the, the stuff of the earth, not just 
the spiritual part of my inner being or something. No, everything is part of God's plan for redemption and restoration. And so creation all around us is groaning. If you listen hard enough, you might even hear it. Groaning, waiting, calling out to God, how long until everything is restored? That's how you should see every earthquake, every bushfire, every cancer patient, every military coup, every act of terrorism. I'm not saying God is doing those things. I'm saying they are groans of a broken creation that is eagerly expecting to be made new, to be released from its bondage, it says, to be set free. So our experience, those who trust in Jesus, Our eternal experience is going to be one long, visceral experience of being set free, of liberation. And the whole creation around us is going to experience it with us. That's a lot bigger than just me putting my hand up at the Billy Graham concert, right? It's a lot bigger than me praying a prayer and asking God to forgive me. It's so much bigger than that. God's plan and story of redemption and restoration is beautiful. And what happened at the beautiful gate is just a little microcosm of that. It's a little taste of that, right? A lame man in bondage to decay is set free to run and jump and praise God. That's exactly what happens to creation itself when Jesus comes again. This lame creation begging for its supper is set free to run and jump and celebrate for eternity. Are you getting this? This is pretty amazing. When you see God's plan of redemption in living color, in all of its faceted beauty, you can almost do nothing but just worship God. So the gospel achieves perfect forgiveness, blotting out, wiping out of our sins. And it achieves the restoration of all things. And let me just say this, all right? In the midst of the last week and the last month, in the midst of all of this calamity, here's what a Christian response is in view of what we've just heard. Everyone look right at me. This is really important, all right? Because some of you don't know what to do with this. You're overwhelmed. That's how I feel. Like, this is too much, All of these tragedies, this is our response. While we have breath in our lungs, we work for the reconciliation of all things. Sometimes the Christian response is to say, well, this world's going to hell just like God said it would, and so let's just bunker down. We'll come and live at a church in our own little commune and just hope that Jesus comes back soon. That's not what Christians are called to do. Christians are called, while we have breath in our lungs, in the midst of this broken and futile world, to work for reconciliation. So everywhere you see it is possible, you work for the the mending of broken things. And as you do it, the reason you don't lose hope as you muck it out in the mess of this world, the reason you don't lose hope is because you're also looking forward to the restoration of all things. You work, you graft, you toil with every breath that God gives you for the reconciliation of all things as you look forward to the restoration of all things, the final, beautiful consummation of God's plan. 
right? That's what we're called to do as a church. That's what you're called to do as a Christian. And so the gospel achieves the wiping out of our sins. It achieves the restoration of all things. And finally, the gospel, number three, achieves the salvation of all peoples. All peoples. Not all people, not as in every single person, but all kinds of people. All peoples. Peoples from all over the world, every tribe and nation and tongue. Chapter 3, verse 25 to 26. This is our last bit. He says, You are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, Through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless your, you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Okay, so this is what's happening. He's speaking to Jews, and he says to the Jewish people, You are heirs of the covenant of promise. That first covenant that God made with your forefathers, you are heirs of that promise. And you need to know that that covenant, that promise is extending to all peoples. Lest you think this is just about you, Israel. No, God's plan of redemption and restoration is spreading to all peoples of all nations. And we heard this in chapter 1. Remember Jesus said, when you're filled with the Spirit, you'll be empowered to witness throughout the nations to the ends of the earth. And we here this morning, gathered in Caroline Springs, a testament to God's plan, right? His good news has extended to all peoples, all the cultures represented in our midst. The fact that we are nestled in the very bottom of the most southerly inhabited continent on the earth, right? It has spread to all peoples. And Peter says to these Jews, this, this promise came to you first, and now if you reject it, you'll be cut off because it is going beyond you to all peoples. And even as he says this, he doesn't fully get it. He doesn't fully get it till Acts chapter 10, we'll see, where God gives him a vision and it finally clicks. Wow, this gospel plan is for everyone. This is going to outlast me. This is going to outgrow me. This is an incredible plan of redemption for all peoples in all times and all places. God's plan for all of eternity was that all people would be gathered, all peoples would be gathered under the Lordship of Jesus. And if you want some encouragement, if you're feeling a bit down on this church, just look around and see how God's plan is being worked out even in our midst, even this morning. When we sing in just a minute, I dare you, just look around you. See every nation, tribe, and tongue gathered around you singing the praises of Jesus, singing about his redemption and his future restoration. This gospel that Peter talks about here, this gospel that he wants us to know and imbibe and, and, and swim in and be saturated by, and, and, and this gospel that tells us to live all of life all about Jesus, this gospel is astonishing. It's far more astonishing than the miracle that healed the lame beggar. It's astounding. It's incredible. And let me tell you, friends, if you take these three things, the three things we've talked about this morning, the three things that 
Peter says, the gospel achieves for us. If you take those three things and you drink them in and, and you marinate in them and you soak in them and they become the lens through which you see all things, they become your worldview. If you allow all of that to happen, it will revolutionize your life. And I mean that in all of its fullness. It will revolutionize your life. And I promise you, if up until this point your experience of day-to-day life is pretty mundane, it will no longer be if you allow these three things to change your heart and your mind. You'll be able to live in the joy of your salvation as you understand that all of your sins have been wiped out completely. It will enable you to see the world around you in a different light. It will encourage you to seek reconciliation while you have breath and it will encourage you that God is coming again to make all things new. And it will spur you on to share the gospel with all peoples, that nobody is out of God's reach. My dream for this gathering is that we would make all of life all about Jesus. What that looks like is taking these magnificent truths and soaking them them to the point where it's, it's the way we see everything to the point that it conditions all of our thoughts, words, and deeds. Now, that's a great vision, but it's completely beyond the scope of someone like me and probably even someone like Peter. But it's not beyond the scope of the powerful Spirit of God. So I'm going to pray for us now and ask that he would fill us with his Spirit to live and work to his praise and glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you that it reminds us of your glorious gospel. Lord, how quickly we forget the gospel and how quickly we replace the magnificence of the gospel with our own petty, small counterfeits. Please save us from worshipping imitations of the Lord Jesus I pray that we would understand afresh this morning that Jesus Christ is on the throne, that he is our risen Lord, King, and Christ, and that he is calling us while we have breath to work towards the reconciliation of all things. And Heavenly Father, we do look for that day when you'll send your Son again. We look for that day and we yearn for that day and we groan with creation for that day where you'll restore all things. We hardly dare hope for it, Lord. It's so beautiful. But please put it at the forefront of our minds. Have it always in front of us. Help us to focus on it in the midst of this decay and futility. Lord, for this congregation and for the churches around us, the churches that gather around Caroline Springs, Lord, we pray for each of them that you would be raising up men and women and children of God who would have this mindset, who would have this worldview, who would know the gospel and live out of it. 
that we might make all of life all about Jesus. And we do pray it in his good name. Amen.